I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast, a podcast that's been called, quote, easily 10 times more useful than my MBA, which probably says more about higher education than our pod, but it was a nice review. We're going to start sending the pod along with some deeper content each week. So if you're a power listener of Idea to Startup, head to gettacklebox.beehive.com or the link in the show notes. Beehive is spelled a bit wildly. So it's gettacklebox.beehive.com. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about whether you should niche down with your idea or not. I have a theory on niching. I'll explain it to you in four parts today. It'll be like a play. By the last act, you'll know if a niche is the good guy or the bad guy, or like most things in life, either, depending on what seat you're sitting in. I've mentioned one of my favorite talks of all time before on the pod, but I'll mention it again because it's one of my favorite talks of all time. Kurt Vonnegut on The Shape of Stories. I'll put it in the show notes. It's short, under 10 minutes. He talks about how stories have a few common shapes. The most popular is a U. Someone starts in a fine place, but something's missing. Then something bad happens and they fall into a hole, and they're clearly in a pretty bad place. But then something great happens, and they dig themselves up out of that hole, and they end up in a clearly better place than where they started. People love the U story shape, and it is the base shape for something like 95% of all books and movies. But Kurt's bigger point in the talk is that this scenario never actually happens in real life, because in real life, you never actually know in the moment what's good and what's bad. Something might happen and it seems bad, but then it becomes good, or it seems good, but then it becomes bad. Something also might ping pong back and forth over time between being a good thing and being a bad thing. And usually the person the thing is happening to forces a thing that seemed bad to become good or vice versa. People often have a lot more control over what's good or bad than they think. We love the story architecture of clear bad thing followed by clear good thing because we never have that type of clarity in real life in the moment. Maybe that'll come back around in Act 4. I guess we'll have to see. Also, I'll be saying niche, not niche, the rest of the podcast. I made that decision a few years ago and I haven't looked back. Niche just seems friendlier. I also decided to spell through T-H-R-U. I feel like it gives me more of a laid back vibe and it puts people at ease. Like, hey, we're all friends here. No need for the O-U-G-H. Anyway, the niche question is the most common question I get. If you aren't familiar with it, the question is, should entrepreneurs niche down to start? Meaning, is starting with a purposefully small, focused, confined, uniform corner of the world that you spend a lot of time and effort owning before you grow the fastest route to growth? Or is niching artificially kneecapping your potential before you begin? Basically, how do you grok being ambitious with owning a niche? The pros of niching down are clear. You have a good chance of getting people's attention with focused messaging and narrow channels. You can accumulate some serious fans that love what you do and will overpay for it because their problem has been ignored for so long. You'll be forced to choose who you help and who you don't maybe the most important skill a new entrepreneur can hone. The counter argument is clear also. If you choose the wrong niche, you might spend all your time on something that can't scale. There's no guarantee that serving a niche will translate into something a broader audience likes as well. Maybe the bigger market you're trying to eventually serve doesn't have a clear niche you can target as a wedge. Maybe it feels like you're shrinking from the bigger problem you're out to solve. 
And finally, the one I'm hearing most often lately, as the whole Kevin Kelly thousand true fans thing permeates the zeitgeist and micro communities in dusty corners of the world are monetized. What if I'm the dog that catches the car? What if I do nail this niche and then I just have to do that thing for the rest of my life? I call this the Jiro problem. If you've ever watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi, he makes his son spend like 15 years learning how to make rice. Most people aren't ready to make any sort of long commitment to a niche. It's common to hear about entrepreneurs who are, quote, endlessly, hopelessly fascinated by like mung beans or LLCs or something else equally dumb, and it can be hard to see that type of singular devotion in yourself. So it seems a bit silly to try and own a niche if you know that you don't want to own a niche long term. The niche question is strategically tricky and emotionally loaded. Strategically, is a niche really the best way to start a business? And emotionally, is a niche really the best way for you to be happy in the business you start? Is it the best way to recognize the grand plans that you have? So let's get into it. And to start, we'll have to jump into a time machine all the way back to well, just 2022, not that far back. I won't do the whole best song was this and best movie was that because you probably remember. Also, I googled and hadn't heard of either. I'm blaming that on the kid. Back in the time machine. Act 1. The Origin Story A year or so ago, a chef reached out after listening to the podcast for a while, trying to figure out if Tacklebox would be a good fit. When I asked him what he was up to, he responded mysteriously. I've got a secret, he said. I remember he just let that hang in the air, which I thought was either very cool or very creepy. I realized he wasn't going to continue until I acknowledged the secret thing, so I said something way less cool like, well, you've got my attention, and he continued. I can turn anyone into a significantly better cook without them ever turning on a stove, he said. I've been a chef for a while, and I've taught a bunch of my friends and family to cook using this technique. Basically, smell is responsible for 80% of what we taste. Smelling is tasting, but our noses are severely undertrained. I was intrigued. He kept going. If you want to learn to cook, he said, the first thing you need to do is learn how to smell. Well, you likely already know how to smell. What you really need to do is learn a vocabulary for what you're smelling. Have you ever been in a restaurant, he asked, and tasted something and thought, whoa, this tastes like, and then you draw a blank? That is because you don't have the vocabulary you need to describe what you're tasting. So the first thing I help people do is build that vocabulary so that they can recognize different tastes. To do this, I blindfold them and put spices under their nose. At first, they can't tell the difference between just about any spice or herb, but they learn fast. Then, I'll cook something like risotto in a few ways, and they'll taste and tell me if they can identify the spices and herbs we taught them to smell before. So, they'll pull out saffron or sage or paprika and identify them by name. Then, when they start to cook, they've got vocabulary. They can identify what taste they want and how to create it. When they eat food, they can recognize what's in it. I've created a workshop, he said. It's a month long and happens only on weekends, where we do the smelling exercises and the tasting exercises to give them basic vocabulary. Language is the missing ingredient, especially for people trying to begin cooking. Wow, I said, genuinely interested. How many of these workshops have you run? Well, none so far, he said. I did it kind of informally with some friends, and they did end up identifying the paprika and the risotto. But I've been told I need to find a niche. That is why I'm here, to figure out how to do the niche thing. And frankly, because I don't really believe in it. I don't think it's a good approach. Prove me wrong. Well, all right, we better get to it. Act two, 
after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Act two, the players. What's a niche really for, and what's a great niche look like? There are two big misconceptions that people have about niches. We'll hit both in this section. First, what they're for, and second, what a good one looks like. Let's start with what they're for. What do you hire a niche to do? The answer is straightforward. A niche is a shortcut to trust. Early on, you'll need to build trust with a customer so that they'll go with you on the journey that will be you solving their problem. It'll be bumpy and sporadic and an overall terrible experience for everyone, so they need to be firmly on board. They need to trust that you know what they need and are driven to help them get it. The way you build that level of trust is through specificity. Most products are general. They're commodities. We are not going to be. If you get horrible neck pain when it rains and I say, I can help you fix your neck pain when it rains, you're going to trust me. By the way, chronic pain tests are running. More on that in a pod coming soon. With that trust driven by the specificity of the niche, you can do two core things that'll drive your business. First, you're going to practice. You're going to get reps. You get to execute on the hard stuff you've likely never done before in a place with fast feedback loops and motivated, often forgiving customers. And second, you get to create the resources you're going to need to grow. We'll start with practice. Whatever you're doing before you started a business is unfortunately not relevant. If you're working at a startup or marketing for a fast-growing business or investing in startups at a VC, it just doesn't translate. Until you've showed up on someone's doorstep and built something that actually helps them solve a really hard problem, nothing you've done in the past has a whole lot of relevance, which is totally fine, but you've got to learn immediately. Throwing yourself into the fire is priority number one. By the way, the most helpful pre-startup job I've ever seen is probably copywriting. There's a massive gap between what your copy needs to be to get attention, keep attention, and convert customers, and where most people's copy starts. Copywriting is a skill. Anyway, a niche is a forcing function for you to stop kidding yourself and see where your skill set and idea stands with all the hard things that make up a business. To execute on a niche, you'll quickly find that you need to first get people's attention somehow, and you'll realize it's absurdly hard to do that and that everything in the startup world is downstream of getting attention. You'll then need to come up with a promise the customer really wants you to keep. You'll have to package that promise into something people will pay for. Then you've got to figure out how to deliver it. Those go from hardest to easiest in order, with delivering the value the simplest bit but it'll take this process for you to realize that and believe me on it. So a niche tosses you in the deep end of the pool. It's the pretext you need to start wriggling and thrashing around in your market. You'll go through a few niches before one fits, evaluating how willing customers are to give you their attention, money, and a referral before you pick where you're going to start. And that is the counterintuitive bit. The purpose of a niche is to start, not to finish. To learn in an environment conducive to learning. What niche you choose initially doesn't really matter because it's almost certainly not where you're going to end up. 
The second thing you hire a niche for is to seed your future growth. It is an investment. Companies grow when they're able to make their first customers wildly successful. Then other companies in adjacent markets will notice that success and be jealous of it and want to work with you too. That is really the only reliable way to grow your business early on. Always remember, jealousy, not greed. So your niche gives you the ammunition for that growth, the collateral. The very first customers are the ones with the bleeding neck problem. They won't need social proof to be convinced to give you money, but every other customer will. So you need to leverage those first customers to grow. Which means thinking about your first customers as the subjects of a documentary. You want to pull together resources about how you help them make a status level jump, get videos of them talking about the pain you alleviated, the hole you pulled them out of. You want to know how they measure success and make sure they hit those metrics and attribute them to you. You want white papers or quotes or however else your industry views trust. You want those quotes then to drive your H1 on your website and anchor your email sequences. Also, if it's a good niche, which we'll discuss in a second, it'll generate a ton of word of mouth. Customers will love to tell other customers about the business that solved their unsolvable problem, and you'll grow. The other big thing you'll get from your first customers is money. If you choose the right niche, your first customer will overpay you to solve their problem. Your first customers will give you the highest margin because they'll have the greatest need and largest potential status level jump if that need is met. The niche should generate a lot of cash because each subsequent niche, which we're going to get to in a second, will generate less margin than the previous. So your first niche should get you marketing collateral and a budget to execute on it. Which brings us to big question number two. What does a good niche look like? In a word, cohesive. You're looking for a group of customers that all, one, suffer from the same problem and go through the same process to solve it now. Two, measure success the same way. And three, speak with each other all the time, ideally about the problem you're solving. This problem you're solving should hopefully be a bleeding neck problem. It should also be a few of painful, urgent, frequent, expensive, and growing. The problem is overlooked, or the customer is underserved, or the niche is just too small for bigger companies to be interested in, and that is why the opportunity exists. Finally, the customer needs to be influential in some way. Since the next group of customers you get will come from watching this first group be successful, you need to make sure someone else is actually watching them. Back to our chef friend. He knew he needed to start with a niche. He'd thought a lot about it, and when I asked what niche he'd start with, he said that he would be the, quote, cook by smelling guy. No one else had ever done it, he said, so he could, quote, own the niche. Now, keep in mind, this only sounds silly because we just walked through what a niche actually is. If you aren't an entrepreneur, there's no way you'd innately know that the cook by smelling guy isn't a niche. It's just a silly descriptor of someone who clearly just wants to be the something guy. And this is the mistake tons of people are making. I get emails like every day from people who want to be the VR guy or the resilience guy or the SaaS guy or the analog guy or whatever. They want to quote, own that niche, but none of those are a niche. These are also the people who are worried about falling out of love with whatever silly descriptor they've given themselves. What if in two years I no longer want to be the SaaS guy? What if I get tired of that, but I've built a giant audience of people who know me as that and I've built courses for that and a product and a business around it? What then? 
So it wasn't surprising when our smell-to-cook friend said he was scared of that niche because he wasn't sure he wanted to be this smell-to-cook guy forever. He loved all sorts of aspects of cooking and loved helping people learn how to cook. He loved restaurants and making new food and taking risks. So what should he do? Whenever you hit this moment, if you hit this moment, remember what a good niche is. A group of people who suffer from the same problem and go through the same process to solve it, who measure success the same way, and who speak with each other all the time, ideally about the problem you're solving. Lots of entrepreneurs think the niche is about them. It's not. The niche is about your customer. Now that we know what a good niche is, we need to talk about everyone's big fear, how to actually grow from a niche. Time for Act 3. Act 3, the perceived villain. Can I really grow from a niche? As always, the villain is mostly imaginary. Founders tell me all the time that they won't be able to grow if they start too small. I'm convinced they won't be able to grow if they don't. From the emotional side, avoiding a niche is usually about avoiding hopping into the arena and trying to help someone else be successful. If the niche is well-defined, you've got no excuse. You know who your customers are, and they'll either want what you're selling or not. It's scary, so you don't do it. Lots of people want to say they have a startup idea rather than actually have a startup, and that is fine. But to the non-emotional side of the question, once you've nailed a niche and want to grow, you've got a decision to make. Do you want to grow vertically or do you want to grow horizontally? Meaning, do you want to sell more stuff to the niche you've found or sell the same thing you sold to the niche to a bunch of other adjacent niches? Here is what that looks like. One of my favorite businesses is called Slice. I've done a whole pod on them. I'll link to it in the show notes. The founder, Alir, had worked in pizza shops and his family had been in the pizza business for years. He knew that the needs of a pizza restaurant were different from other restaurants that wanted to hook into the off-the-shelf delivery services like Grubhub or Uber Eats. So he built Slice, a delivery app specifically for pizza shops. He made sure he was differentiated and better than Grubhub for pizza shops, and he grew by neighborhood, from Brooklyn to the Lower East Side to Midtown to Philly to Boston to LA to Austin and on and on. As he built trust and insight with pizza shops, he began offering vertical services, point-of-sale software, inventory management, even design assets and boxes. He built trust with the first customer and kept building more and more for them. He grew vertically. Now, he launches his own pizza shops because he knows operationally more than just about anyone, maybe aside from Domino's. Horizontal growth looks different. You nail the niche, then use the trust from that niche to grow to adjacent customer segments. If Alir had taken all the trust he built helping pizza shops with delivery and spread to, say, Chinese restaurants or taco joints, assuming that what he learned translated to those businesses, that would be horizontal growth. But he'd need to know how to meaningfully differentiate from alternatives for each new restaurant segment. So a founder needs to know if their insight, their secret, their differentiator is set up to scale vertically or horizontally. It's rarely both. Alir and Slice knew his insight scaled vertically. The other massive growth benefit to a niche is choosing an influential first customer. If Alir's first customer was Joe's Pizza, a local gem in New York City, it'd be easy to spread to adjacent pizza shops because those other pizza shops admire Joe's. Influence doesn't mean 10 million followers on Instagram. It means, in Seth Godin's words, famous to the family, influential within that tight group. 
Every niche has status levels. Start high and you'll be able to grow quickly. Back to our friend trying to get you to smell cumin with a blindfold on. I pushed on him hard with our niche content. The spice smelling guy isn't a niche, I said. What customers disproportionately need what you know? Who's already excited about it? Who's got a problem they desperately want solved? He didn't have an answer. A week or two later, he emailed me with the subject line, holy shit. Inside, it said, quote, I found the first niche, sommeliers. They already know this stuff. They already do it, but mostly informally. They talk about it as an exercise, but it's also always related to wine. Lots of these people want to cook too. They obviously love food and love matching food with wine. I can build out a course that helps them smell the spices and herbs that'll make them better cooks. It'll help them pair wines with the food they make, and I think just generally become way better at identifying and selecting wines. And there's a niche of sommelier cooks, or sommeliers considering opening their own restaurants, or pairing pop-ups. And sommeliers are always influential. Not just about wine. Friends assume they understand food at a higher level too. They're always asked about wine and food. What about them? Sure, I replied. Give it a shot. The niche is all about getting started. Act four, the real villain and the real hero. Trust yourself. I think the real issue with niches is that they don't come with a guarantee. Whenever we talk niches, the entrepreneur will say, well, if I get this niche, then I'll get that niche, and then that one, and that one, and that one, and then I'll do blah, 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 and I'll end up here. And if they can't tell that direct story, if they can't connect the dots in front of them, they aren't interested in the niche. And when they do like the story, the first niche immediately laughs at that and creates a whole new plan as soon as they get started. We talked about the cons to choosing the wrong niche at the top of the pod. You might choose the wrong one that doesn't scale. You might not be able to navigate to adjacent markets. You might get stuck. But those are all future problems. And startups are a place where you've got to trust your future self. Pick a niche, work hard to serve the customer, and trust that future you will make a good decision about sticking with it or ditching it, about how to grow. Future you will see the opportunities you can't now and make good decisions, but current you will only get there if you try. I have a chiropractor I go to every month who's maybe two parts chiropractor and seven parts therapist. The other day, I was telling her that my Achilles hurt and I could barely walk. I'm training for the marathon again in November. I've been running since the end of college. I think I like it. Ah, you're done running, she said. What? I'm too old for it? I asked self-consciously. No, no. I just think it's time to move on to something else. Try something new. Pickleball or tennis or swimming or soccer or weightlifting or surfing or really anything else. Your body is too patterned to running. Time to shake it up. It was weirdly freeing. I'm now done running. And I have so many other things I can try. We'll end where we started with Vonnegut. You can never predict what's going to be good or going to be bad. You can always pick stuff up and you can always drop it off. Nearly any decision you make isn't binding and can move you forward, but most backward steps are made by standing still. So get in there and start thrashing around. That's the only way you'll learn. And a niche is the fastest way to do that, to thrash around. So a niche is what I recommend.
This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to figure out the former before you leave the latter, come join us. Apply at gettacklebox.com and we can be working together in 72 hours. Have a great week.